Good morning, everyone. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We always have reason to be glad in our Savior. Uh, what a God. What a King. Um, yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being the sovereign, almighty, living God, the creator of all heavens and earth, the one who's opened our eyes to see you, the one who is in our midst, who dwells in our hearts, who speaks with us individually, who guides and directs our steps, who provides wisdom and strength for the day. And thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that uh, the God who made our eyes can see everything. The one who has made our ears hears everything. You know everything, and you have all power to save and to help and to redeem and comfort. And we look to you, Lord, now to speak to us. And we want to be receptive to your word and to your truth, to the moving of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we pray that we would be uh, just engaged with you today, to hear you, to bow before you, and acknowledge you are God, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's because God created us to reason and think that we ask the question. We bother to ask, like, what is the point? Have you guys ever asked that question? What is the point of doing this? Or what is the point of going there? And we, we weigh positives and negatives, and we, 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 de- we determine whether it's worth the effort, whether it's worth the work, because we don't want to work for no reason. I think of the boy at school who, who questions like, what's the point of doing this math that's not relevant to real life? He can't see a real-world application, and because it's hard, wonders, why? Why are we doing this? Why do I have to do this? And some people, they can't see the point of getting out of bed early. Like, what's the point? Or making the bed. Like, it's just going to get it unmade again. Why should we go through the trouble of rearranging the, the sheets and the blankets and getting them just so? Because we're just going to mess it up again. Now, there are good answers to that question, but... Um, so, my baseball teammates and I, back in the day, we, we decided there was no point in having training when you need nine people to be playing. Like, if only two or three people are going to training, what's the point of us meeting? So, we decided we're not going to meet until more people show up. Um, you wonder, what's the point of offering advice if people aren't listening to it? What's the point of weeding your lawn when your neighbors all around you are letting their lawns go to seed and just inundating your lawn? At some point, you're like, okay, is it worth it? To some people, yes, it's worth it. This is important. And other people are like, eh, just cut it and pretend that it's grass. (laughs) You know, there's so many hours and minutes and days we have as the earth circles the sun And if we think that something is meaningless and pointless, we will start looking elsewhere for what matters, what really is significant. And we're going to start a new book today, Ecclesiastes, if you turn there. Ecclesiastes, all scriptures are wisdom from God, the words of life. And I think this book is especially relevant in our modern affluent culture. Now, we are told that the, the author identifies himself as the preacher, or koheleth in Hebrew. That means leader or leader of the assembly. And it's sometimes treated as a proper name, but here, because it's the preacher, it seems to be a title. This book of Ecclesiastes, it's very unique in the scripture because 
it primarily looks at life through a lens at the world that does not include God. So he does not look at the world from a spiritual perspective. It's looking at the world through the observations of what is, what everyone else can see, these universal truths we can all observe in all cultures and all people for all time. And what's really amazing about this approach is he is able to make a very compelling case about the utterless pointlessness of the utter pointlessness of life apart from God. Just by seeing what there is in the world, by his own experiences and what he's achieved and accomplished and acquired. And he looks at the world as under the sun, so he's not looking into the heavens. He's saying everything under the sun, everything that's on the wor- in the earth, it is pointless and it is totally meaningless. And he's going to break out his arguments why it's pointless and meaningless. Some collect, connect uh, Ecclesiastes with pessimism literature, which was a literary form in the ancient world. And he exposes really the folly of humanism. He shows by experience the poverty of hedonism, just living for pleasure or living for yourself and seeking the absence of pain. And ironically, the emptiness of materialism. That the more things you have, it doesn't mean you are more full inside. You still are empty. Those things aren't going to supply that satisfaction and that materialism. It's a value system preoccupied with possessions and the social image we project. And he observes we can't be satisfied by the thing we're seeking. So the very thing we're seeking, and even when we get it, it doesn't satisfy us like we thought it would or that it should And though he's pessimistic of everything under the sun, by knowledge of God, this preacher, surprisingly based on his premises, he he rejects the philosophy of nihilism, which is the rejection of morality and that all life is meaningless. He doesn't come to that conclusion. He concludes in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. So he starts by seeing the world as complete vanity and realizes that, you know, the only meaning to life is found in God. The only purpose we can ever find and enjoy the satisfaction of the life God's given us now and in the future is by God through obeying him. And so really, this book is a voice of reason. It reaches unbelievers, it challenges believers, and it turns us to God. So let's begin in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? So the author, he calls himself the preacher. We know this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored by him. But this word preacher means leader of the assembly. He also says, the son of David and king in Jerusalem. Now that's only one person that that could really be. It's believed to be traditionally King Solomon. It wasn't until the 17th century that some people began to say, well, the style may not be like Solomon's style, um, but there's no evidence that rules out Solomon. And based upon his description of himself here, it's, it's pointing directly at Solomon because there's no one else who was king of Jerusalem who was the son of David and achieved all the things that he did. And so my Bible dates this book well over 900 years before Christ. Um, When we read God's word, a wise approach is to see it as God's message directly to you, God speaking to you. 
And when we look at our socials or we go online and we read an article or we have the newspaper, we watch something on TV, we have the freedom to decide this is, this is worth watching, this is worth saving, or this is like, I'm just going to skim this article, I'm not interested at all, or just something we'd send or just say, but we reject it, right? So we can reject it, we can accept it, we can pass it on, but when it comes to God's word, God's word is not for us to decide if it's right and wrong. It's for us to be changed by it because we are not God and we don't think like God. And we're in a world that is not following God and does not uh, approve of God or honor him. And so therefore, as people who fear God, his word is to change the way we think, change decisions that we make, to, sh- to shift our perspective from the things of this world and how valuable and how, how they're worth pursuing to realize that really God is the only one that satisfies. He's the only one who can help us. So he begins with this really strong statement. He repeats it. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity, it's also translated meaningless. The, mo- the most holy place in the temple, that was the holy of holies, or Jesus is called the king of kings and lord of lords. The idea is that in the temple, it's that is the most holy place. There's no place more holy. There's no greater king. There's no greater lord than, than Jesus. And so when he says vanity of vanities, he's saying everything in the world, I put it into this one basket of being completely meaningless, completely without value. And so that should get our, get our attention, especially if we value anything of this world, right? We're like, hold on, what do you mean? What do you mean it's meaningless, it's vanity? So he puts all the things we can do, see, acquire, experience, work for, enjoy, and pursue as entirely vanity. Vanity of vanities, the most meaningless thing ever with no lasting value or purpose. And as we'll see, this conclusion was arrived at by a king who enjoyed unparalleled wealth, wisdom, prosperity, and power. It would be little impact for me to say, uh, to say what he's saying because there's a lot that I haven't experienced. I, did, I have not raked in over a billion dollars annually in gold just by taxes and gifts, right? That's not my lifestyle. I have not uh, made silver as common as stones. Having that kind of wealth. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 40,000 stalls for his horses. I'm like, 40,000? That is a lot of, that's a lot of horses. That would be a lot of expense. He's importing chariots and peacocks and apes. Like he has all these exotic things that he, he builds his, his, uh, what is it called? His throne out of ivory, and then he just overlays it with gold. Like, the guy has wealth, and he's a thinker. He asks a lot of questions, and he says, what profit has a man from all of his labor which he toils under the sun? And we'll see this word, this phrase, under the sun, many times, 29 times in the book. It talks about the here and now. It talks about the earth. So it's looking at the world from an earthly perspective. He says, what's the benefit? What's the point of all this? You work, and we'll explain this in greater detail. I think of, when it comes to our labors, there's things that we have to do, or we're made to do. Like when you're a kid, and you're made to do chores. Like we used to have a checklist. Like, okay, it was like the draft on the, 
you know, what is it called? Like baseball, where like you have, you have teams drafting their best players out of uni. It was like, well, do you want to do the washing or do you want to wash the car? Or do you want to mow the lawn? It's like, ooh, okay. So you're thinking about yourself in those moments, right? You're like, which job do I want to do and which job do I want to avoid and stick somebody else with? So what's the point? And, and then there's tasks that we do that we enjoy doing because we like the result. We like seeing things clean or organized. There's time-consuming tasks that we do only because we're paid to do them. If we weren't paid, we wouldn't be doing it. But we do it because it's a living and we're willing to. Or maybe you just like to see a job well done. You're like, I, I want to see this finished. I want to see it done. We like fixing problems or working through a, uh, a pr- improving a process. And all while this is all happening, all these jobs are happening, you know, the, the house is getting older, the roof is starting to leak, the paint is peeling, uh, the beds need to be made again, the car needs to be, uh, t- you know, detailed and petrol in again, and there's no end in sight. Like, this is just going to keep happening for the rest of our lives. Have you ever thought, what does this profit me? What is this benefiting me? It reminds me of a fable between the fisherman and the businessman. There's this businessman on holiday. He's seeing this fisherman kicking back on the beach. He's got a rod in the water. He's got a couple of fish in the bucket. And he's like, you know, this guy, he could really improve his life with some life lessons from me. So he goes up to the fellow and he says, you know, you won't catch many fish like that. You could work a bit harder. And uh, the fisherman says, well, what would be my reward? He says, well, you know, if you catch more fish, you could sell them at the market. You could invest in a net, maybe at some point, even a boat. You could get right out where the fish are and you could catch more of them. Less effort and much more reward. And he's like, well, well how would that profit me? And he's like, well, getting a little impatient now. He's like, well, if you're able to make more money, you could have a fleet of boats. You could have people that are working for you, that are going out and doing the hard yards. You, you can maximize your profit. And the fisherman's like, well, how does that benefit me? And he says, well, you'd be rich. You could retire and enjoy life and spend time with a family. You could just sit on, the, sit on the beach without a care in the world. And the man says, well, what am I doing right now? <laughs> the businessman imagined that more money would lead to a happier life. You could do more things. But this man said, the life that I'm living right now, like, this is great. He found satisfaction there. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Solomon starts exploring all these natural processes that we see in the earth. He talks about the planet that's going to outlive us all. He says, generations come and go. Before my grandpa passed, he, talked, he lamented a bit about, you know, I'm the only one among my friends that has left. Everyone else has gone. And uh, I didn't know what generation he was part of but he was part of the silent generation. I'm like, oh yeah, I've never heard of the silent generation. That's be between the greatest generation and the baby boomers. So that's 1928 to 1945. So you've got generations. It seems like come up with generations that are even closer together, right? I think there's like probably five generations since I was born. 
Um, and he's speaking of truth that everyone can see, everyone can observe. He's saying the wind, it blows in a predictable pattern. You've got this weather pattern, it's gonna be cool today. We have our southerly busters that will come and cool off at a, after a hot day, and it's that relief, You're like, oh, I could use 15 degrees cooler, thank you, Lord. Um, the weather pattern that I grew up was called the Santa Ana wind condition, which is instead of the wind blowing in off the west coast of San Diego, it's when the wind reverses and it comes over the, the desert and it's really hot, it's really dry, like it'll dry out your nose and you can get nosebleeds and it's just, you feel it in your chest. Like so, these are just predictable patterns and, and I remember looking out from my parents, into my parents' backyard and seeing the Cuyamaca Mountains out in the distance, I have a picture of what they look like, but it was like during winter, this is what you would see after a nice snow. And we didn't get any snow at my place, but you could see it out in the distance and it's just quite, uh, Quite lovely. So that's Parkway Plaza. If you ever go to El Cajon, that's the shops there. So yes, I did not take that picture, but I thought it was cool. So the chill of winter, it gives way to the springtime green and summer dry, and one full rotation of the earth is a day, and one trip around the sun is one year. And what's this cycle that's seen on a grand level, it's also true of a microscopic level. I learned through this study that our timekeeping is not based on the sun anymore. It's based upon cesium, which is atomic number 55. So you have this official se second, like how do we know when a second has passed? And this was pretty amazing. So it's the frequency of the valence photon emitted by the cesium electron when it jumps from excited energy to a grounded state. Now, it's measured in oscillations or hertz, which is, this is fairly precise, 9,192,631,770 oscillations. So you've seen that picture of like the, the uh, photon going around the, the nucleus. It's like nine billion times that happens in a second. And that's how they know exactly what a second is. And the atomic clocks that they have, they are estimated to be accurate within a second for 1.4 million years. And when I saw that, I'm like, wow, God is even more perfect than that. Because it's going to be off a second in 1.4 million years from now. But, and so it's like, whoa, okay, this is way crazy. Like God is so awesome in his wisdom to make such things and to design them. Ecclesiastes 1.8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So he's talked about these ceaseless rounds of nature, the wind patterns. And now he's talking about um, our own lives that everything is full of labor and there's so much labor going on, we can't even talk about it, everything that's happening. And he didn't have a technical understanding of what's exactly happening in our bodies. We know that in, by the time you're 70 plus, your heart will have beated two billion times, just circulating that blood throughout your body, over, beat, beat, time and time again. And, and I thought it would be fun just to look up uh, a couple of maps on what's happening inside my body right now. 
And uh, there's some maps that I found that explore the metabolic pathways of the human body and some of the chemical processes that are taking right now that you don't even know about. And here's one of them. This is part one of what's happening in your body on a chemical level right now. This is edition four. Want to zoom in on part of that for us? So if you ever wondered what your fatty acids are doing, or your, <laughs> I'm like, oh boy. And th there's a second one of cellular and uh, biochemical pathways. So it's like, this work is happening without you even knowing about it. All life is full of labor. I cannot express this to you. It's just a picture. And I should have warned you, if flow charts put you off, you probably should have closed your eyes because uh, you're probably in a comatose state by now. Like, what? The New Living Translation, it puts verse 8 like this. It says, everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Have you thought about that? Your eyes are never tired of seeing. Your ears are never tired of hearing. You can put all kinds of things in your ears, and you're like, what's, what's next? You've seen like we can look at our phones and there's a notification and a second later we're looking at the phone again or we're looking over here or we're checking an article or, and we're, we're never tired of seeing. Our eyes get tired, but we're not tired of seeing. There's still more that we want to see. When someone says, did you hear what happened? You're like, what? I want to know what happened. Of course you do. Your ears are not tired of hearing. No one's ever going to say, you know, I, I think I've seen enough of the world with these eyes. I'd like to have them out. No. You use them. You, you want them. We prepare and enjoy a feast and we eat till we're full and maybe too full, but the meal results in us being hungry later. We're still hungry. There's still a need. We're thirsty again. And so not only does the labor of life make us weary, but it can be repetitive and dull. Our lives follow the same pattern of basically everyone's life, you wake up, you put on clothes, you feed the cat, you go to work, you do meetings, you, uh, you come home from work, you make dinner, you eat it, you clean up after dinner, maybe you unwind, and then you just start the same process again the next day. And it just keeps happening week after week. We fill the bin, we empty it, and man, it fills up again. We pay our bills, and guess what? It's a do again. And we're thinking, oh man, I thought I just paid this. Our physical ailments, they flare up. The headaches, they come and go. And what Solomon says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. It's like there's a predictability. There's an inevitability to life and the things that we face. The daily grind of stress, the pressure to perform, our own ambitions and desires. You look forward to a holiday, but they're soon over and you're back at work or you're back in the routine, and it's true. There is nothing new under the sun. The pursuits of man from the beginning have remained the same. Despite advances in travel and technology, people have not changed since the 3,000 years ago this was written. We can identify with them and what they experienced. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 10, Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. 
Solomon said, is there anything that could be said, is, this is new? And we might say, oh, well, of course there's new things. We have a lot of things that, that Solomon didn't have. But realize a lot of the things that we discovered as new, they've been around. It's estimated that 18,000 species of plants and animals are discovered every year that have been around since before Solomon. 18,000. They, they estimate that 86% of land animals, 91% of sea-dwelling species had yet to be studied. These are ones that we know about. So we know about all these, but we haven't really studied them. Wow, that's a lot of study. It's a lot of things to look at. Like, I remember how things have changed. I remember email's humble beginnings with your desktop PC and your dial-up modems and that sound that it would make. I don't think you ever forget that. Sending messages is nothing new, right? That's been around. You used to have pigeons and ponies and telegraph and, and telephone. It's just communication, just in a different way. Nothing has changed. Another aspect of new things is they cannot stay new. Wouldn't that be nice if you could get something new and it stays new? You can leave the plastic on your fridge. It's not going to stay new. It's going to get old like everything else, like your shoes and your glasses and your car. As soon as you have something, it has become becoming old, becoming older. And the joy of having a new thing, it doesn't stick around long. Laura and I were just talking about this. We're like, you're excited to buy the thing, and then almost the excitement can be gone by the time you have the thing. Uh, the other day, I set up a, a sound bar for our TV, and I was excited to, to have an upgrade and to get rid of some of these speakers that have all these wires going everywhere. So it's much more compact, and it sounds good. And... and uh, but when the Wi-Fi signal was reset, the thing wasn't connecting properly. And I was like, kind of like, what is going on for half an hour? And I was at the point of like, let's put this thing back in the box and send it back. Like the, the, the feeling of, yeah, this is a new thing and it's great. That wore off quick, really quick. Things are fixed now, but uh, yeah, things get old. Even something you're excited about. You're like, okay, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of the struggle. In Solomon's day, they didn't have speakers connected via Wi-Fi, but they replaced musicians and singers. Like, okay, out with those guys. Let's bring in some new minstrels. And they did so. And what's new today will be forgotten tomorrow. He says, there is no remembrance of former things. People grow up not knowing how things used to be. I saw a funny video of a couple teenagers trying to figure out a rotary phone. And it was connected. And they're like, make a phone call with this. And they're like, oh pushing on it. Oh, this moves. They, they couldn't. They could not dial the thing. Others have no idea what a cassette tape looks like. Some people don't even know what a CD is. Now, that should make you feel a little bit older, right? They've streamed all their music. They've never had a CD. What do they need it for? If we went around the room, we could have countless examples of how the world and how we live has changed. But you know, at the same time, nothing has changed. Like how, how life was different before mobile phones and the internet. We may not even be able to remember how things were before that. Um, how different was life before electricity and indoor plumbing? You know, there's people in the world who live in these exact conditions right now and are quite happy and lack no good thing. 
And when he says the former things will be forgotten, he's saying the things that will happen after we leave this earth will not be remembered. So not just will the things of the past be forgotten, but the things of the future will be forgotten just like the past. And so it increases the, the sense of meaningless and futility of it because you can try to be remembered, but you'll be forgotten. It's a reality of life. It's no surprise to me that the greatest generation, what is called the greatest generation, was forged by the Great Depression. And it seems like the new generations cannot rise to the same level. But you know, it's always been that way. And it will always be that way. Because he says, what has been is what will be. And in his wisdom, Solomon understood. He was convinced that through history, there would be no remembrance of things to come after. You know, we can have... And praise the Lord for people who have a godly legacy, who love the Lord and serve others. They're remembered well for their service. But these stories, they're passed down through generations. Books can be written, monuments erected. But you know, stories are quickly forgotten. The details can be distorted. Books, they are out of print. They sit dusty, unread. Monuments, they molder away. The words fade and moss and, and leaves cover them and you're forgotten. For a short time, we have this opportunity to partake in the circle of life where we touched and have touched a handful of souls. You grow older and finally go to God. And this is a very dreary picture, is it not? It's, it's a pretty depressing outlook, but it's in that darkness that the light of Jesus shines bright because the light of your TV and your mobile and your computer screen, it cannot compare to the light, the life, and the hope that we have in Jesus. Because that new show or that new game or song or career, it cannot offer, offer you the hope of anything new that will stay new or that will actually satisfy you. It can never deliver those things. Remember when Jesus visited Samaria, he came to a well and there was a woman who came out to draw, wa draw, draw water at the well. It was a very old well. It had been dug by Jacob Centuries before, Jesus asked the woman for a drink. She gave him a drink. And he says, you know, if you knew who you're talking to, you would have asked him for living water. Now, living water is running water. That's like spring water. It's water that's coming from a natural spring that's pure and refreshing and cool. She was very interested in that. It says in John 4, 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman's looking for convenience. She's looking for a better water source. Yeah, this is an old well. I would like that living water, please. But he's like, that is the Holy Spirit springing up inside of you, living water to eternal life. She wanted convenience. He wanted to offer her spiritual life, eternal life, new life. I love what it says in Revelation 21.5 about Jesus after he ascended to heaven. It says, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Solomon lamented, nothing stays new. The new things become old. There's really nothing new under the sun. Jesus makes all things new and they stay new. That's a huge difference. And that's why we struggle to understand how 
heaven doesn't become boring and dull is because we can't understand how something can be new and stay new. But Jesus makes all things new. Everything about you and everything about this life new in him. Time is our frame reference for new and old, but with him we're beyond time. We're outside of time. A day is coming when we're not going to refer to what time it is according to an atomic clock or where the sun is in the heavens, but our only frame of reference will be God. Everything will be centered and ordered around him and by him and for him. And that newness will never wear off. It will never be dull or boring. He is our life. How awesome is that? Ecclesiastes 1.12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. So the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that's both the north and southern kingdoms. There's only three kings that could boast that, and that would be Saul, David, and Solomon. And so of those three, it's definitely Solomon. Early in his reign, God met with Solomon in Gibeon, and he requested that God would give him an understanding heart to judge God's people. And God did this. It's written in 1 Kings 4.29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And so the preacher, he says, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom everything under the sun. So here is the wisest man who lived who is making this search with all the resources that he was given by God. So he was able to make the most wise search to the end of, well, what is all this about? What is the meaning of life? And he put all of this troublesome business in the same category. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. You know, you can feel the wind blowing, but you can't grasp it. It's like, it leaves my hand empty, so why am I wasting my time? I cannot grasp the wind. And he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. The world is bent out of shape. Man's best efforts to keep God's laws, it shows that we're crooked as well. That everything is bent and cannot be made right. And in countless ways, we've deviated from God's perfect standard. Think about building, for instance. You guys may not, People are not as observant as others when it comes to, let's say, um, clothing choices or how things match, you know, the, the matching of colors or perhaps the, the skirting or the, the ceiling tiles in this room or the registers. Your, your eyes may not be drawn to these things. They're just, they're there. Or in your own home. I think if you've ever done any work yourself, you're probably your own worst critic, especially if you do something in the bathroom a place where you're going to maybe sit down and look, and you're like, hmm, that tile is not flat. That woodwork is not straight. Something about that is wrong, and you put the spirit level on it, yep, it's a little off. It's not perfect. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's perfect. You see, in our, our new house that we had built a few years ago, there, we noticed there were some mismatched tiles. 
Some of the tiles were matte and others were shiny. And so we talked to the builder and ultimately there was a claim and, and the work was done recently. But it was like, so all the tiles had to come out and they put in new tiles. Now, of those new tiles, do you believe they were all perfectly laid? No, <laughs> they weren't, they aren't. I can show you places where these brand new tiles are not perfect. We just think if it's new, it should be perfect. No, that's not how it works. Not in this world. And then over time, small cracks, the house is settling, things get old. You know, your, the black sole of your boot catches the skirting. Oh, there's a mark. Oh, and that's into the paint. You can't just wipe that off. Even if it was done a thousand times, those tiles would not be perfect. And even if they were done perfect, guess what? In time, the slab could heave and you'd have a crack beneath the tiles. This is the world we're living in. You're like, Solomon has reached this point. He's like, what is the point? This is meaningless. Me toiling over these little things, humanity and everything we do, it's chronically imperfect and our problems and flaws are beyond reckoning. Like there's no numbering of the problems in the world. And anyone who thinks humans are capable of saving the planet or ourselves have conveniently ignored Solomon's observations. Ecclesiastes 1.16, I commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind for in much wisdom is much grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon in his wisdom, his experience, his accomplishments, his his knowledge unparalleled in the world and ever since. 1 Kings 3.12 tells us uh, he answered Solomon's prayer that he would be made wise. It says, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you. So he is applying wisdom given by God to his life. He has resources and wisdom to know what he's talking about. So he's a person of authority. And the, the things that people pursue, he did to the human extreme. Everything to the extreme. I mean, if you have a thousand wives, that is very extreme. And he discovered it's all empty. I've done it all. I've acquired it all. There's nothing I withheld from myself. I've had, I've pursued all the fun, but it's grasping for the wind. It's vanity. It's empty. Most people merely scratch the surface of what Solomon experienced and were duped to think that meaning and experience and fulfillment lies in what we haven't yet attained. Right? There's things that we are looking toward. Like, um, we're thinking if I, when I get that new career or when I have this money or when I buy the house or when I get married, when I travel, then I will have what I'm looking for. Yet, we remain empty. And so Solomon, he's speaking from a position of he's been there and done that. And he's saying, listen to me, people. Everything under the sun is meaningless and grasping for the wind. You will not find your purpose or your fulfillment in those things. And knowing that it's futile, it only adds 
to your grief and sorrow. It only adds despair and misery once you have them and you realize there's no life here. There's no hope here. It's kind of like even if you get the thing that you want, it's not going to provide you what it think it could or what it should. And you'll be like a mouse on a reel, a wheel, a lot of exertion and effort, but no progress. You look to the next thing and it still leaves you empty. And so, logically, let's just tease this out. If all is vanity and grasping for the wind, what's the purpose of studying this book? What's the purpose of reading the scriptures? If wisdom brings grief and knowledge increases sorrow, isn't ignorance bliss? If we're just ignorant of this fact, wouldn't that make me happier? So the, per, so the pursuit of happiness is, then is keeping myself ignorant of this thing. Well, no, we have the blessing of knowing before the book ends that our ultimate meaning and purpose of life is found in God who created us, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom for us. It's by God's grace and mercy that he fashioned us to reason with this insatiable thirst for knowledge and satisfaction and to find purpose in a world he's designed where you cannot get it. The world cannot supply or deliver what we're looking for and what we need. And your needs are much more than just oxygen, water, shelter, um, companionship. Our need is for God. And he's made this world bankrupt of who we need so that we will recognize it and be drawn to him. He does that to draw us to himself, that he'll see that there's no life in this stuff. There's no life in your house or your car or in the, the achievements or being remembered well. It's in him alone. He is our maker. He is our giver. He's the sustainer of all things. Everything we have and enjoy is a gift from him. And that changes everything. If we're just looking at life under the sun, it is meaningless. It is pointless. But there is life and a new life in him, a life that remains new. It does not get boring or dull. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4.19 as we close. Four, Philippians 4.19. We're going to jump forward to the concluding remarks of Paul in his letter. He's imprisoned. He's urging and exhorting believers to rejoice in the Lord always. Really, rejoicing in the Lord is the theme of this book. Paul said he was blessed to receive a gift from them. And then he says this confidently in Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's like, you guys, you help me with my needs, but I know God will supply all your need. All your need. And not just according to the world under the sun, but according to his riches by glory in Jesus Christ. Solomon, by wisdom, discovered that everything under the sun is vanity of vanities. Paul, by divine revelation, realized all our needs are met by God in whom we have purpose and satisfaction and life. It's not that God is the key to wealth, success in your endeavors. We would use God as a means to our end. Man would do that. But God wants us to know satisfaction in life is in him. It's in him. 
not in what he gives us, not in what he provides for us. If you are satisfied, are you, if you are dissatisfied with life today, if you're filled with hopelessness or you feel like life is meaningless, know that Solomon felt the exact same way. And he did and had everything a person could ever have. So chasing money and stuff and clout, it's going to leave you empty. We, we can know that right up front. And you can look in your own life and see, well, that's true. I have pursued and I've come up empty. Know that Jesus Christ, through faith in him, he leads us to an abundant life now and forever that will satisfy and fulfill our every need, physically, spiritually, and he makes us new. So instead of grasping for the wind, by faith in Jesus, we are the ones being loved. We're the ones being comforted. We're being strengthened. Instead of grasping for the wind and coming up empty, he holds us. He holds us to himself. He comforts us. And we find rest for our souls. Rest in the weariness. We can be weary, but we will not be forsaken. We will not be lost because he, he is our life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your wisdom. I pray we would believe you. I pray we would believe the words that we've read today, that everything under the sun, Lord, it's vanity of vanities, that our pursuits and our achievements and the things that we are looking to provide satisfaction and feelings of fulfillment, it's not found in these things. It's not found on this planet. It's found in your presence. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself available to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've made us needy. You've, you've created us in such a way that we, we are always hungry and thirsty. And you have also drawn us to yourself as the one who gives living water, that living bread from heaven, and you make all things new. And I thank you, Lord, that we don't need to wait until heaven to discover this. But we can, we can know this now and rejoice in the things you've given us. We can find meaning and satisfaction in you. And thank you that we are new creations by faith in Jesus. And that this life of following Christ does not get old. We're getting older, Lord, but you don't. Thank you for this uh, insight you've given us today. And I pray that we would not be weary in well-doing, but know we will reap if we faint not. Lord, I pray that you would comfort every burdened and tired heart, that we would not be weary, but we'd be strengthened in faith and realize that you have given us such an opportunity to know you and to glorify you now. And may we do so with new sense of purpose and uh, help our eyes to be fixed on you, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.